0: Amen. All right. So this is one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, If you have been coming to encounter for uh, any period of time, maybe about a year or so at least, I think everybody's been around for quite a while anyway. um, This is a message series that was started years ago and was never intentionally designed to be a perpetuating kind of repeating recurring series but I fell in love with it. I really enjoy it and the feedback that we've received has been positive that uh, individuals have really enjoyed what we do and so this series is called Heroes and Villains. It started off actually years ago just being heroes and then we decided to introduce uh, the other side and villains and what we mean by that is And this is kind of the phrase that we always start the series with for each of the messages and heroes and villains is that the stories in the Bible, we believe that they're not just stories. Um, And then the characters in each of the stories are not just characters. The Bible was written so that we would be able to see ourselves as humanity in those stories. What is God saying to us about him? What is God saying to us about humanity and how we relate to each other and how we relate to God? And so the stories that we read, the people that we see in scripture, we can see ourselves in them. This is why we love stories so much. This is why we love reading books and watching movies, because we can identify with the emotions and the choices and the actions that people make. And then it causes us to think. That's why I love science fiction so much because it asks questions about humanity, uh, about morality um, on a great scheme, like a grand theme and grand scheme. And and I can see myself in it and it helps me to think about how I would react. And so as we return to this message series, Heroes and Villains, we're gonna explore the lives of some of what we would call the best and some of the worst characters in the Bible. And what we really know, right, is that there is no best, there is no worst. And that in reality is that human beings, we're all the same and have the capacity for both sides of that. And so what we're really going to do is find our place in the stories and ask the question, what might God say to us through them? What might God say to us through them? And so this, this week, we're going to begin with uh, Thomas. Uh, who is famously called Doubting Thomas. Uh, we're gonna start this series with the villain this time around, although albeit with a little bit of a twist. Usually we start with a hero, but uh, just for uh, timing and sort of the way that we wanted to structure this series, we're actually gonna start with the hero or with a villain this time. Next week, we'll be exploring the story of Abel from the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis the week after that, we'll stay in Genesis, but the, at the other end of the book, Genesis has, I think, 60 chapters, and so we'll be near the end of it by exploring the story of Potiphar's wife, uh, who is, you know, a famous individual, but we don't really ever talk about her a lot. It's usually from the perspective of Joseph, uh, and then the following week, the last week of the series, we will explore the side of the story from Potiphar's wife, but from Joseph's perspective, and so uh, Doubting Thomas Abel, Potiphar's wife, and Joseph is who we're going to be exploring. So if you guys want to read those character stories in preparation, we encourage you to do that. Uh, But today we are beginning with Thomas. And I'm calling him Thomas because I don't like to call him by his by his moniker that is so famously named, which is Doubting Thomas. So on my my notes here, I have Thomas, but then I have in parentheses Doubting, right? Because that's what everybody knows him by. If any of you have ever, um, have have not heard the story of Thomas, Doubting Thomas, don't worry, you will by the time we're done today. Um, But I wanna ask this question. i want to start by asking this question to everybody uh, this morning. Have you ever felt like you were defined by a choice. Have you ever felt like in your life that you were defined by other people for a choice that you have made? Or maybe like one decision, probably negatively, that one decision that follows you around or has followed you for a long period of time. How does that make you feel? Most of us, I would say, it feels unfair. It's frustrating you know, I don't want to be known for one choice or one action, right? But we tend to do this as people. We tend to, to identify and categorize and label individuals based on choices that they make uh, in short frame timeframes. Uh, an example of this in my life, actually, I was thinking this week about it. And this actually came to me this morning. I remember when I was in high school, Um, many of you know my story in high school, I was a different looking person than I am now. I was in a very sort of dark phase of my life. I was, uh, dressed in all black. I wore a black trench coat. I wore sunglasses inside. I was that kid. Um, I, you know, was wearing like chains and spikes. I hung out with a crew of people who we like to call ourselves vampires. Um, I played, you know, role-playing games, which I still do, but, um, it was just a time of my life where I was just involved in very edgy things and at the time was really making some poor choices. Well, I was also into computers and, you know, fancied myself an amateur hacker at the time. And I remember in the early days, I was in the computer lab and I was looking up different things. And I I used to like uh, to format the hard drives in the computer lab thinking I was cool. I would go to Best Buy and they would have laptops out. And this was before they had demo screens that forced you to only use what they had. So I would go and open up the command prompt and I would erase hard drives at Best Buy, you know, the demo computers. And I would erase the hard drives and I would leave a little message saying, you know, something like, you know, fight the man down with the establishment, and I would leave it on the screen. It was ridiculous. Anyway, so I remember one day in high school, um, I was kind of doing the same kind of thing, but I was looking up things on the internet, and there was something called the anarchist cookbook. Um, this was uh, back in the day, back in the early 90s, mid 90s, where, you know. Um, Anarchy and, and there was a, like a, a sort of phase of people like the people that I hung out with who were very anti-establishment, right? Um, and I remember looking up on the internet the anarchist cookbook because I was like, I've heard about it and I thought this was some really cool thing because that's how I felt. And, uh, and in the anarchist cookbook was a schematic for a pipe bomb, All right, Now you can imagine maybe what happened next. So I thought it was fine. I was like, oh, I should probably get rid of this. And I took it off the screen and went about my, you know, C++ class or whatever I was in at the time. Um, And then it was like later that week, I got called into the principal's office and my parents, you know, were called in and I was about to be expelled because I was looking up bomb schematics on the, on the internet in a public school. Right. And, uh, and I remember just having to tell them I did not, I was not trying to do that. I was not trying to find, you know, I was not looking up, you know, bomb recipes. That was not what I was trying to do. And I, and I had to like plead my case that I was just trying to look up this other thing. And I told them that I ended up, you know, it was a mistake. I accidentally clicked on it. I was in fact looking for the anarchist cookbook, but I didn't know that that was in there, to be honest, the truth be told. Um, Anyway, long story short, uh, I didn't get expelled, thank God. Um, But I was given a Warning. I don't think I was suspended or whatever. They they believed me that I didn't mean to do it. But that decision that I made in that moment uh, followed me really through the next four years of high school. I always had the teachers and the principals looking over my shoulder. Uh, even when I found Jesus and my life changed, and even my like, my, de- my my clothing changed. And this is not to say that just because you were black, you know, or, or dressed like that, that you're not a good person. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that that for me. My life began to change as I found Christ and, and he began to change my life. And I began to change even in my outward demeanor and the way that I acted, but that still didn't change the way that people saw me over time. I was defined by choices that I had made in my early, my early high school career And to this day, there are still people who know that that I did that, namely my family. But that is a decision or a choice that has defined an aspect of my life and period of time in my life. Have you ever felt like you were defined by a choice or one decision that follows you and you feel like it's not fair? Well, today we're going to be talking about Thomas, who is known as Doubting Thomas. For 2,000 years, regular old Thomas, disciple of Jesus, Thomas, has been called Doubting Thomas, Doubting Thomas. Why? Why is he called that? Because of one moment, one recorded moment of doubts. And the person who wrote it, Thomas didn't write the book of John that we're about to read today. In John chapter 20, if you guys want to go ahead and begin uh, opening your Bibles or your smartphones to your Bible app and open up the Bible to John chapter 20, Thomas didn't write the book of John. John. But John thought that Thomas's actions were, were enough to be defining that, 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 and then Christians and everybody since then for the last 2,000 years have called Thomas doubting Thomas because of one moment of doubt. But what's going on in John chapter 20? So as we get to, to Thomas's story and why he's been called that, in John chapter 20, it's been two days, two days since Jesus had been crucified, two days since Jesus had been buried. I want you to imagine for a moment this incredibly traumatic experience to witness as a follower of Jesus, right? Your friend, your teacher, the one that you spent pretty much the last three and a half years every single day, every night, you know, doing ministry in the city, hearing his teaching seeing him perform miracles, speaking into your life. You were just a fisherman. You were just a a lower class uh, individual who all you had to look forward to was your family's business, right? You were an apprentice in your dad's shop and, and that was pretty much all you had and now you're seeing all of Israel and traveling around, following Jesus. Imagine remembering the nights and around the campfire in the wilderness and laughing together and hearing hearing your friends laugh and and seeing talking about the day of of, of incredible ministry that you did together, following your teacher, and then seeing him being whipped and beaten seeing him hanging on a cross, being a capital execution. Like that would be the equivalent of like an electric chair or, or hanging or like a, um, like, like the gas chamber, or something like that in modern day, seeing your friend. And it's only been two days. The traumatic experience of that. Imagine the confusion that the disciples would have. I, I, I thought that this was the one. I thought that Jesus was the one. If you don't know a lot about biblical history, you might not know that there were other, quote unquote messiahs other people who were going around at the same time who were saying that they were the messiah the chosen one and they had all you know gone the way of the dodo as well but jesus there was something different about him right the miracles that he was performing people were following after him lives are being changed and there was something by the time jesus was crucified people were like this is the guy this is the one but now two days after his crucifixion these guys are holed up in a house they're hiding They're terrified of being arrested and suffering the same fate as Jesus because the Jewish leadership all were now like, we're going to stamp out Jesus. We're going to stamp out his followers. We've had enough of the disruption. Can you imagine how you would feel in that moment, the confusion of it, that at any moment, the police could knock down your door and drag you to prison and potentially just crucify you? And so it's Sunday morning, two days ago. And Mary Magdalene bursts into the room, The tension is thick and she bursts into the room and she's claiming that she had just seen Jesus alive. Imagine that for a second. Like you guys are just kind of like sitting there, maybe having your cup of coffee and you're stressed out. What are we going to do? And all of a sudden this woman bursts in the door. You know her, but you're not expecting her. Jesus, I just saw Jesus. And you're like, what? You calm down. What are you talking about? I saw him too, but like, he's dead. Remember we put him in the tomb. Jesus, he's alive. He was in the garden. He's walking. He's talking to me. Imagine that for a moment, how you would feel. Can you imagine like the confusion even in that, like just the emotion welling up the hope, but like what would your first thought be? Now we don't don't know what the disciples' immediate response was. In John chapter 20, verse like 18, it doesn't tell us, right? It just says that Mary came in and said that she saw Jesus. But then the very next verse tells us that it's evening now. And then Jesus appears in the room. All right, so this is where we're going to pick up our story. John chapter 20, verse 19. Earlier that day, Mary pops in and says, Jesus is alive. But we don't know what the disciples' response was. In verse 19, it says, when it was evening on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. Okay, so Jesus was crucified and buried on Friday night. Saturday goes by. They're hiding in Sunday morning in, the, in this room. Disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came Jesus the one who was dead came and stood among them and said peace be with you and having said this he showed them his hands showed them his side and so the disciples rejoiced when they saw Jesus they rejoiced like it wasn't just the word of someone else now they they saw him and Jesus said to them again peace be with you. And as the father has sent me, I also send you. And after saying this, he breathed on them. We had a message series, uh, I think last year about the breath of God breathing. Like this was a precursor of the Holy Spirit coming on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And this is where our friend Thomas comes into the story. But Thomas, who was called twin, we don't really know why, one of the 12. So he was one of Jesus's inner circle, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, we've seen the Lord. We saw Jesus. Poor Thomas said to them, well, if I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, Or put my finger into the marks of the nails in his hands and put my hand in his side. What a gross thing to do. I will never believe. All right, we're just going to stop there. Doubting Thomas. This is where the word comes from. This is where we get the the phrase doubting Thomas from, right? Forever defined by doubt. All the disciples got to see Jesus, but Thomas was, who knows where he was. Maybe he was out getting food, right? Like, Hey, we're going we got to hide. We don't know. We're going to be here for another week. At least Thomas, can you go out and find us some supplies? Kind of go out and get the, like, talk to your connection in like city hall. Are they looking for us? Like, maybe we don't know what he was doing. Right. When he comes back and they're like, so excited. Wow. The atmosphere feels really like light in here. <laughs> like what, what's been going on? We saw Jesus. Whatever guys, come on. That, you, that's, that's nuts. Like, and they're trying to convince him. Like I get the impression, like he's so emphatic about like that he's not going to believe them. Like they must've thought, like he must've thought they were crazy or that they've snapped or mentally something is wrong with them now. Right. Or they're just wishful thinking or, you know, they're just on edge. Look, guys, stop, stop bugging me. I'm not going to believe that it was Jesus. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can do. I'm not going to believe it was Jesus unless I see the nails in his hands, unless I see the, the hole in his side and I can touch it. Okay. How would you Or I respond in that moment. Think about that for a second. Just everything that I just said. How would you respond if you were Thomas and you walk back in the room and your friends, your closest friends who have no reason to lie to you told you that they had just seen Jesus? Let me ask you this question, maybe a little bit broader. How do you respond when you hear about a miracle? So like when you hear someone say, I prayed for this person and they were healed. If you hear about a story of someone on the mission field, like in another country, particularly in places like Africa or in India, which are more mystical in nature, and you hear, I've told stories of people, I've seen uh, uh, examples of this happening on the mission field with people being prayed for a tumor or blind eyes being opened. And when I tell you that story, or when you hear another person, or when you hear about something at home, like someone says things like, uh, you know, I didn't know how I was going to pay my bills. And all of a sudden, a check showed up on my door for $603, the exact amount that I needed for rent or something. What are your thoughts? What do you think about in that moment? How do you respond in that moment? And the reason I ask that is because in our society, we have been conditioned to be skeptical of anything miraculous or supernatural. I don't say that lightly, but I believe it. In our American Western society, think about it. The Enlightenment, right? Think about the Renaissance. Think about the differences between Western society and Eastern society, We talk a lot about Eastern medicine, right? Middle Eastern, uh, religion tends to be much more spiritual. Western society is much more knowledge-based scientific reason analytics, right? I mean, just think of like the NFL. And sports, everything is analytics driven now, right? You make your decisions about whether to go for it on fourth down or whether to pass the ball on, you know, third and one, for example, instead of running the ball for a sports analogy based on what the analytics tell you. And, and a coach who decides to go with his gut is actually seen as silly what the analytics say, right? This is the world that we live in. And we've been conditioned to be skeptical of anything miraculous or supernatural or unexplained. Honestly, I think Thomas gets a bad rap, to be honest with you. I really do. I think Thomas gets a bad rap. He made one decision. He said this when everybody else seems to be, you know, excited about it. You know, that one phrase, can you not just be excited about, about this one thing, right? Or the people who watch movies that are like meant to be like fun and bubblegum and overanalyzed. It's like, can you just enjoy the movie, you know, or like just the book? Like it doesn't have to, everything has to be like, you know, like, I, I really do think that Thomas gets a bad rep. And honestly, I think I am a lot more like Thomas than I'd like to admit, to be honest. And maybe you guys can can, can ad- admit that as well. And I think if we're all honest, we all have doubt. I think we all face doubt. Now some of us more than others, for sure. And some of us have the opposite problem where we uh, believe everything that we hear, all right? So like there are two opposite ends of the spectrum, all right? So what is it that we can learn from Thomas? Because this is, this is really the point of this. Like, how do we see ourselves? If, we're, if we all agree that we can see ourselves in Thomas, like, I, I understand, like, I could see how Thomas would be like, I don't know, I saw Jesus die, but I have not seen him alive. My friends tell me he's alive, but I haven't seen it. And it seems completely impossible. Right. My friend told told me that they saw someone who was blind and they're not anymore after a friend prayed for them or they prayed for them. Like I get it. I believe them. They don't have a reason to lie to me, but at the same time, it's hard for me to believe that. What can we learn from Thomas? this story? What is the Bible trying to tell us in this story? And this is what I believe this message is about, what this, the point of this story is about, because we're going to follow this story through the next couple of, of sentences as well, verses as well. But this is what I think. Write this down if you're taking notes. I believe that doubt does not have to define us. Doubt does not have to define us. Doubt, in fact, can be beneficial right? What can doubt do? It can actually cause and encourage us to have critical thinking. And this is an area that I believe that many Christians in modern Christianity in American Christianity do not have is critical thinking. They'll take what a pastor says to them, they don't really read their own Bibles, and they just take their pastor's word for it. Or equally, the other end of the spectrum is true. And we talked about this a little bit in our EC Gentleman discussion this past time, was that, or because we're biblically illiterate and we don't allow scripture to to be the foundation of our value system, society shapes the way that we think. And because we believe that, we don't compare it against the value of our biblical training because we don't have any or we aren't willing to really study it or, or to, uh, to, to we're, we're not comparing it to scripture. Then we find ourselves sort of more like culture. And I would say this, that doubt does not have to define us. Doubt can be beneficial. It can lead us to critical thinking, but it cannot control us as Christians. We cannot be controlled by doubt. We have to be people of faith. Why? Because we are people born of faith. The entirety of the gospel message is really about faith. It does not condemn doubt. Oftentimes we think that it's preached that way. But if you look at it, it's Jesus always comparing the two as which one is more effective. So doubt can be beneficial, and there is a place for doubt, but we cannot stay there. Doubt cannot define us. And so this week, as I was preparing this message, I looked up a few quotes about doubt and faith, and I found a few that I think could be helpful for us. St. Augustine said this, doubt is but another element of faith. Doubt is but another element of faith. I like that. It does appreciative. To, I appreciate that. It gives me a space to understand that they can work together. Uh, Pierre Abelard said this, the beginning of wisdom is found doubting. By doubting, we come to the question. And by seeking, we may come upon the truth. Okay. I like that too, I appreciate that. Doubt causes me to ask questions and questions if it leads me to seeking, leads me to the truth. And finally, Robert Browning said this, you call for faith, I show you doubt to prove that faith exists. The more of doubt, the stronger faith I say, if faith overcomes doubt. I'm gonna read that again because I think this is really the crux of it here. You call for faith, I show you doubt to prove that faith exists. The more doubt, the stronger faith. I say, if faith overcomes doubt. So they work hand in hand together. We see Thomas here, right? Like having doubt that Jesus is alive. And we see him defined by his doubt by people, but not by Jesus. Let's read the rest of the story. How did Jesus respond to Thomas? doubt, How did Jesus respond to Thomas and his doubt? We're going to pick up a story again in John 26, verse 26. Sorry, John 20, verse 26. A week has gone by. (coughs) Excuse me. A week later, his disciples were indoors again, so nothing much has really changed. And Thomas was now with them. And even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, hey, put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, my Lord and my God, like just put yourself in that moment. The elation that you might feel seeing with your own eyes, your Lord and your savior, and maybe even remembering that Jesus told you he would rise again, but you had forgotten it in your anguish and in your your fear. He's here in front of you, my Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And you know, in this moment, I often thought when I read this that he was chastising Thomas. But think about the other disciples. They saw Jesus too, right? He's not chastising. I think there's an encouragement that's going on here. So let's look at a few things in here and see how Jesus responds to Thomas and to his doubt. And then we're going to talk about what this says about us and our doubt and our faith. The first thing is in verse 26, look what Jesus says to them. He's a greeting of peace. Peace be with you. And he said it twice. The first time he said it, he said it to everybody except Thomas because Thomas wasn't there. So he greeted his disciples with peace. Peace be with you. They were terrified. And the first thing he addresses is their fear. Peace be with you. He blesses them. But nothing's changed for Thomas. Thomas still doesn't believe. And Jesus walks in the room and he says again, Peace. Be with you. Jesus greets him with peace. The second thing that I want to observe here in verse 27, he directly addresses Thomas. He doesn't disapprove of Thomas. He doesn't dismiss Thomas. He doesn't go, hey, Thomas, because you didn't believe, I want you to leave. I'll talk to you later. Like, you're like the second class disciple now. He doesn't do that. He goes directly to Thomas, sits with him and says, Thomas, come here, Thomas. He doesn't demote him. He doesn't disapprove of him. He doesn't dismiss him because of his doubt. The third thing I want to observe here in verse 27 is he actually meets Thomas. He doesn't just directly address him. He actually meets Thomas in the place of his need. Jesus wasn't in the room when Thomas told the other disciples that he wasn't going to believe unless he saw the nail marks, unless he saw the pierced mark on his side. Jesus walks up to Thomas and says, hey, you said you needed to see this. Let me show you what you need. Jesus met Thomas in his doubt in the place of need. And the final thing I want to observe here in verse 29, after Thomas responded. After Thomas responded, then came instruction. Jesus didn't address Thomas's doubt until after he had met him, after he had restored him in relationship, after he showed him, it doesn't matter what you think, I'm still here. And then he says, like a loving father, now let me teach you something. What does this say about doubt? What does this say about faith? What can we learn from Thomas's story and doubting Thomas? Remember, I believe this entire story is about doubt does not define us. Doubt can be beneficial. It can cause us to think. But remember what we heard from Robert Browning. The more doubt, the stronger faith. If faith overcomes doubt, doubt should not define us here are some things that I think that we can learn from this story based on our observations. The number one is that doubt does not change our relationship with God. I think we see that Jesus walked into the room and said, peace be with you. He called out Thomas. He didn't put him in the side of the room. Peace with God is always the starting point through Christ on the cross. Just as a side note, Colossians chapter one the letter to the people of Colossae, the apostle Paul writes in verses 20 to 22, he says, we are reconciled with God and making peace with him through the cross of Christ. So it's no secret or no surprise that Jesus walks in the room because of the cross of Christ, right? The first thing he says to his disciples is peace. Calm down, have peace in your heart. I know that you doubt, I know you're confused. I know you're terrified, peace, peace. Whatever you feel does not change what I've done. It does not change how I feel about you. I would go back and I would do it again. Hear me. Somebody needs to hear this this morning. I would go back and I would do it again. Because of the cross of Christ, we are reconciled to God and have peace with him because of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus says to his disciples, in doubt and in fear, peace be with you. Doubt does not change our relationship with God. The second thing that I think it says to us is that it reminds us that our faith in Christ is a process. And it's also a mystery. Our faith in Christ is a process and a mystery. There is a space in which we don't have answers and it's okay to ask the hard questions. I don't understand how the resurrection happens. Because if I'm honest, I would probably be Thomas in the room. Mary bursts in the room and says, I saw Jesus. All right, whatever, whatever you're smoking. I thought you gave up the crack pipe. Like that's what I'm thinking about Mary, right? Like somebody tells me some miracle happened. My first thought is, I don't know. What coincidence was that, right? These are the things that go through my head. I ask the hard questions about what salvation means. I ask the hard questions. There are some times at night where I I think, am I just crazy? I see people in the world who seem to be getting along just fine without religion, without Jesus. Am I nuts? Did I really have an experience with God or was it an emotion like asking the hard questions? Our faith in Christ is a process. It is a mystery. The incarnation cannot be explained. There is no way to prove it. And yet it does something transformative. When I believe it, the concept of worship that we sing in the morning, it's just songs. Is it just songs or is there something transformative that happens? The concept of our faith and what we see in the story of how Jesus responds to Thomas in his doubt, reminds us that our faith in Christ is a process. We have not arrived until we are restored in all the fullness of when Jesus returns or we meet him in eternity before he returns. Our faith in Christ is a process and it is a mystery. It is okay to ask hard questions. It is okay to seek truth. And we must have the willingness to accept the difficult answers that the question, the seeking leads us to. What does this say to us about doubt and faith? Doubt does not change our relationship with God. It reminds us that faith in Christ is a process and a mystery. The other thing that I think we can get out of this story is that doubt can feel hopeless. If we linger in that space and we haven't found an answer, if we have not, if we, we've sought and sought and sought truth and we're seeking for it and we keep digging and sometimes it feels like we keep getting into a bigger hole of doubt, it can feel hopeless but what do we see from Jesus? It's been a week, right? A whole week. And that entire week, the disciples are on cloud nine. How excited they are. We've seen Jesus. Oh my gosh. He's alive. But not Thomas all week long. Thomas has been sitting in his doubt and now he's even more frustrated, right? Every single day that goes by, how many questions, Thomas, are you still going to sit there and not doubt him? Town is telling you, man. Imagine that if you've ever been in a space of doubt or something has happened in your life, you've, you've met a moment where like, it's shaken your faith. And then you see other people who seem to be doing just fine. They're excited. It makes you feel like you're plunging into a hole of, of hopelessness. But what do we see from Jesus? Jesus meets Thomas. He directly addresses Thomas. He restores Thomas. Doubt can feel hopeless, but faith in Christ always leads to hope. Always. It might take time, but there's always hope. When we spend time in his presence, even without answers, there's always the supernatural hope that comes along. I've experienced this myself. The peace that surpasses the mind's understanding. That's what the Bible says. I have no reason to experience peace. I'm looking at at, at like the firing squad. I think often about, about the Christians who uh, I've seen the videos of them about to be beheaded on the beach by by their captors, and they're singing hymns and songs. There's a peace that has overflowed them. How? Their life is in jeopardy, their life is in doubt. Something has happened inside of them. Following Jesus always leads us to hope, even when we don't have answers. And I saw that in the story with Thomas. The result was, I don't have the answer, but he still hung out with his friends. He was still hanging with them. He still was believing there was something there. There was something about Jesus in his life that I can't let go of. It's not over. Doubt can feel hopeless, but faith in Christ always leads to hope. The last thing I think is important for us to pull out of this story that we can see, what does this story say to us about doubt and faith is that doubt is understandable but faith is the goal. Doubt is understandable, but faith is the goal. What did Jesus do? Jesus gave Thomas peace. Jesus addressed Thomas directly while he was still in doubt. Jesus said, come here, let me do what you need. Let me let me give you what you need. Let me bring a friend to you who, who can meet you on your level of analytical or, or, or in that space. Let me bring somebody along in your life who maybe has walked the path that you do, who can translate and help you understand and see that there is hope for you, All right? This is what Jesus did with Thomas. Let me Let me show you what you need. And only after that space did he then instruct him. Doubt is understandable, but faith is the goal. We see over and over and over again in stories of scripture with Jesus, where the disciples were living in fear, and Jesus would say to them, and it would appear to be a chastisement. But what he was doing is he's instructing them. Listen to me. Live a life of faith. Don't live in doubt. Don't be a person defined by doubt. Don't allow your your mind to get in the way. It's understandable. You can ask questions. It's good to dig. It's good to seek for truth, but do not be defined by doubt. Do not allow your life to be a doubting person. Do not allow people to look at you and say you are a doubting Thomas. No, it doesn't matter what they label you as. What matters is who you are on the inside. And if you are a person of doubt, if you are constantly saying, God, I just can't see how you're going to do this. God, I don't think you're going to do this. My life feels impossible. My situation seems impossible. It's one thing to understand that doubt is there and to admit it and to allow it to to cause you to dig. But if doubt doesn't doesn't push you to seek for truth, if doubt doesn't draw you into the presence of God where you're begging him for answers, where where you're like the woman The woman who had the issue of blood, the bleeding for 12 years, she didn't allow her doubt to say, well, I guess I'm going to sit in that forever. She went and pushed through crowds to find the answer. Jesus is telling Thomas, and I believe he's telling us today through this story, that doubt is understandable, but faith is the goal. We have to keep scratching, keep clawing, keep digging, and keep allowing hope to to, to allow the, the faith to breathe so that we can believe that against all odds, even when there aren't answers, to keep digging to find the truth and believe in faith that God is who he says he is. Jesus is always pushing us to see through eyes of faith. That's what Jesus was trying to do with his disciples in this moment with Thomas. He's saying, I understand, Thomas. I'm not chastising you. Like, I'm not demoting you. There's a better way. See through eyes of faith. There are so many passages about it, so many verses about it, where Jesus is calling us to be people of faith. Choose faith. Ask the questions, but choose faith. There are just some things there are not answers for and I'm reminded over and over again that our faith is born out of faith. Our, our following of Jesus, our, we are born again. And Nicodemus was asking Jesus, how can one be born again? How can I come go back into my mother's womb and be born again? And he's like, you're thinking in your head. The spirit, be born of the spirit through faith in Christ. How do we become Christians? By believing that he is who he says he is, right? Declaring with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing faith that Jesus was raised from the dead? Faith. Doubt is understandable, but faith is the goal. What can we learn about doubt and faith? What do we see in the story from Thomas? Doubt does not change our relationship with God. Doubt reminds us that faith in Christ is a process and it is a mystery. Doubt can feel hopeless, but faith in Christ is always leading to hope. And doubt is understandable, but faith is the goal. And so to wrap it all together, Thomas's story shows us that doubt should not be our final destination, but instead should lead us to a search for truth and greater faith. Doubt, doubting Thomas's story, doubting Thomas's story shows us that doubt should not be our final destination, but instead should lead us to a search for truth and greater faith you pray with me? God, I thank you for your son, Jesus. I thank you for your patience with me and with us. I thank you for countless stories of doubt and faith. I thank you that your the word, the scriptures that were written down, that you included stories that we can identify with. Lord, would you meet us in this place right now? concept of doubt and faith. Some of us struggle with doubt more than others. Some of us believe everything we hear and need a little critical thinking in our lives. But either way, you're calling us to be people of faith. I thank you for how you responded to Thomas, and I thank you for how you respond to us in the same way. God, we don't want to be defined by doubt. We want to be people of faith But we know the reality is, is that we have questions. Sometimes there don't seem to be answers. Sometimes the answers are hard to swallow. Would you help us to be people who seek truth and see through eyes of faith? In Jesus' name, amen.